Dave Rubin, and joining me today is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus and author of Best Things First, The 12 Most Efficient Solutions for the World's Poorest and Our Global SDG Promises, Bjorn Lomberg, welcome back to the Rubin Report. Hey, it's great to be here. Bjorn, I checked right before we started. It's been over two years, which is absolutely crazy since the last time that we spoke. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but I do know that in these two years, the climate people, the catastrophization people have all increasingly gone crazier. Uh, but before we dissect them, for the, for the people that may not know you, can, can you give me a, a one minute bio on uh, what gets you to doing all the things you're doing and, and writing a book like this, and then we'll take it from there. Sure. Uh, what I focus on is really to say, look, we don't have unlimited funds. We have limited resources, but there's so many things we'd like to do. Why don't we focus on where we can spend money and do the most good first? That's both true for climate. So let's do the smart stuff and not the stupid stuff on climate. But it's also true for all the other world's problems. Remember, we promised you know, to fix hunger and poverty and education and all the other problems in the world. And what this book really does is try to say, there are some amazingly smart policies that we can do. Let's do those first. Whatever else you'd love to do, let's spend money on that, but let's just get those, you know, it's about $35 billion globally uh, and, and make the world an impressively much better place. Right, so basically, I mean, the, the thesis of the book, you think for about 35 billion, we can fix pretty much the major stuff. I assume by your background there that you think some of this includes just some uh, some plants you could probably get at Home Depot just to keep the air in your house clean, huh? Please, please give me more plants, yeah. No, uh, so we're not gonna fix all problems, but we're gonna fix a majority of problems. And what we're essentially uh, uh, showing is, and we've worked with more than 100 of the world's top economists and several Nobel laureates to try to find out what do we already know works? And what we find is for $35 billion a year, that's not nothing. I mean, I don't, I don't think you have it. I certainly don't have it, but you know. Uh, in, I'm doing in, all right, but that, that yes, might be pushing it. <laughs> yes, but in the global setting of things, that is really couch change. For $35 billion a year, we could save 4.2 million people from dying each and every year. And we could make the poor half of the world about $1.1 trillion better off. This is probably the very best thing we could do for the world. And that's why I'm saying, let's at least do those best things first. And that's also why you're a bit of a controversial character because you're trying to give solutions that are different than what seem to be the solutions given to us by say the WEF and the UN and, and much of our Western governments and, and all that. So I wanna spend most of this conversation talking about those solutions, but I thought, why don't we get some of the people and organizations out of the way that are causing the problems? like. When you see the WEF and the 2030 project, all, all of these things, the, the Green New Deal here in America, all of these giant expenditures that will massively change things, do you look at them all as sort of, these are just complete nonsensical boondoggle pipe dreams that will never work? Like, is there anything good, in, is there any good nugget in any of these things? Well, first of all, there's the amazing good that actually shows that a lot of people want to do good. They really want to be part of something that makes the world better. Now, there is a real problem with many of the things they identify, but very often it ends up being a very ineffective way to try to tackle the problem. You know, 
take heat waves, which is in, in the in the conversation right now. Yes, we're going to see more heat waves because of climate change, and climate change is a real problem. But we need to get a sense of proportion. First of all, remember, many, many more people die from cold than from heat. And so we also need to remember to actually help all the people who suffer from cold, which is mostly about getting them cheap energy access. But also, if you want to help the people who are suffering from more heat, and we should, it's mostly about getting sure people access to air conditioning. It's about having them get cheap uh, uh, electricity. And, of course, also make cities more livable. One of the ways you could do that is by making greener, making more water features, making them lighter. Uh, Los Angeles and many other cities are you know, experimenting with uh, painting the rooftops white or painting the tarmac white. And that reflects a lot of the energy away and actually makes these cities much cooler. The point here is, those sorts of solutions will actually help right now at very low cost and help real people. Whereas much of the argument that you have with these, you know, we should all go net zero, will have huge costs. We're talking five, ten trillion dollars. This is more than what most countries spend on education or even healthcare. And even if you did it, it would only mean that temperatures would rise, but not quite as much. That's no way to help people. So my point here is to say. Let's focus on the smart solution that'll actually help. Right, and I think one of the problems is, as I often play clips of these people, the, the elites who seem to be pushing a lot of these policies and you know, they don't want you to have your stove and they're, you know, they don't want you to have this hot water heater or whatever it might be, we know they're on their private jets and all of these things. And by the way, I don't begrudge them any of those things except for the fact that they're trying to make sure none of us get those luxury items. But when you say, uh, and I quote, climate change is real, I know a certain amount of my audience is gonna go, wait a minute, We've just had it even hearing that because because they're so upset by hearing John Kerry and they're so upset by watching Leonardo DiCaprio act one way on his yacht and helicopter and then preach another way. So when you say climate change is real, wh what do you actually mean by that? Meaning that that obviously the climate is changing, but do you mean man-made and, and how much of that is something that we can actually affect? So again, I work with economists, so we're looking at what are the smart solutions. I have read, unlike I think a lot of people, uh, almost all, I don't advise anyone to do that. It's very, very boring. But all of the UN climate panel reports, and they're reasonably sensible all the way through. They really tried to tell you what is the best uh, 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 scientific evidence. And the, the short version is... We're pumping out more CO2, from mostly from fossil fuels. CO2 is one of the many greenhouse gases that trap heat and make the world a little bit warmer. This, all other things equal, is going to make more problems than it's going to make solutions, simply because we built our entire society on what the temperature was, was the last 100, 200 years. If it got colder or if it gets warmer, which is probably going to be because of global warming, that will incur a cost. This is not the end of the world as it's being uh, you know, sold. It is a problem. So economists and the only climate economist to win the Nobel Prize, William Nordhaus, estimate that by the end of the century, if we do nothing, which is stupid and we shouldn't do and probably also impossible, but even if we did nothing, the cost by the end of the century would be equivalent to losing about 4% of our GDP. Now, remember, by then we'll be much richer. The UN estimate will be about 450% richer, as rich as we are today. So what this really means is because of global warming, if we do nothing, it will feel like we'll only be 434% as rich by the end of the century rather than 450. That's not the end of the world. That's a problem. And that's why I'm saying, look, 
if it's the end of the world, of course, you should spend everything to fix it. But that's not what this is. It's a problem, and we should spend money smartly on this problem. But also remember, there are lots of other problems that are much bigger for most people. So before we get to some of those specific 12 solutions, what would you say to the people who are just sort of skeptical that we can do anything about this? Meaning like, so for an Ameri from an American perspective, for example, that we're so sort of inefficient, our politics is so broken, these people can't build a road much properly, or at least at cost, you know, in a cost-effective way, uh, that the idea that they could solve any of these things is completely crazy. And then you hear people like AOC say, you know, we only have 12 years left on Earth. I think that was about three years ago. So now we've got nine. And it's like, if you think AOC can solve any of your problems, much less solve climate problems, you know, I got a bridge to sell you. So I, I think a lot of the intuition is right that we are essentially embarking on something that's going to be so phenomenally costly that most countries are actually not going to deliver on this. I, I live in the EU. I actually worry a little bit. The EU is so good at doing stuff they promise that we might actually do it despite the fact that it's going to be phenomenally costly. But certainly in the U.S. and most other places, you'll simply elect other politicians want to really start hurting. That's how politi uh, you know how democracies work, and that's probably really good. So... You're not going to solve it with this incredibly costly and very, very ineffective policy. The way you're going to solve it is like we've solved all other problems through innovation. Remember back in the 1950s, Los Angeles was a terribly polluted place. It was mostly because of cars and a geological, you know, it, it put in a basin and stuff. But sure. fundamentally, the point was not to tell everyone in Los Angeles, I'm sorry, could you walk instead? Which would never have worked. Right? <laughs> they, they do not walk in L.A. No, you're not going to take people's cars away. The solution was this you know, tiny technological advance called the catalytic converter, innovated in 1978. You plug it on the end tailpipe, and then you can drive much longer and pollute much less. Yeah, it costs a couple hundred dollars, but you've actually managed to convince almost everyone across the world this is a good idea, and it solved a very large portion of the problem. Likewise, the U.S. is the country that's cut most emissions, uh, CO2 emissions, over the last 10 years. How? Not because of Obama or Trump, but because of fracking. You basically mm -hmm. inadvertently made gas so much cheaper that most people switched from coal to gas and gas emits about half as much CO2 as, as coal. So you solved a large part of the climate problem through innovation. That's how we do it. Remember, if we can innovate green energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels, Everyone will switch, not rich, well-meaning Americans or Europeans, but also the Chinese, the Indians, and the Africans who are going to be emitting most of the CO2 in this century. So I totally get your, your uh, and your, your viewers' uh, you know, sort of reluctance. We are trying to solve this very ineffectively and incredibly expensively, which probably means we won't solve it at all. But there is a smart way, and it's called innovation. Just well, like that's, most that, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on, because I know even for me in the last year, especially as I've watched so many of these globalist organizations with these crazy projects and then the hypocrisy and literally the gas stove thing here in America, all of this nonsense, even I have become more skeptical in a way that I don't I don't want to be blindly skeptical. I want to be skeptical with with some knowledge of what's going on, which is exactly why we have you on. So let's let's talk about some of those solutions uh, because you lay out these twelve solutions. So give me give me some, what what's like the easiest thing that we can start doing now? Probably some of which we're we're doing to some degree. So 
I'll, I'll tell you two. Uh, you know, it's asking. I have twelve great solutions. You're asking me to pick my favorite child. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, but I am going to give you two. One is uh, uh, to save lives. So one thing that I think most people don't recognize is that each year, tuberculosis still kills 1.4, 1.5 million people. Last year, it was bigger again than COVID. You know, COVID took the, the, uh, the top place for infectious disease killer in 2020 and 21. But otherwise, it's been tuberculosis. We in the rich world fixed this more than half a century ago. But if you actually go back, tuberculosis was a terrible killer. This is why, you know, Sabine and uh, Moulin Rouge died from tuberculosis. And a fourth of everyone who lived in the 1800s in, in Europe and the U.S. died from tuberculosis. This was a, a, a terrible killer. It killed probably about a billion people over the last 200 years. But we figured out a way to do it. And now we don't have a problem. But most poor countries is not that place. And there's a very simple way. It's unfortunately one of the reasons why it's hard to do. You actually have to take your medication for half a year. And most people know that it's hard to just take your medication for two weeks. Uh, but there's a lot of ways to, you know, sort of gamify it, get sort of tuberculosis anonymous where everybody gets together once a, a month and say, yes, I took my, my medication all the way through. And, you know, you gamify it and give people a, a, a carton of orange juice, that kind of thing. And it may seem a little weird that you have to pay people to do it. But if you do that, if you make sure that they don't have tuberculosis, they don't pass it on to another 10 to 20 people. And this is how we solve much of the problem. You also need to screen many more people. We've investigated, and there's lots of models that show how much is this going to cost. It's probably going to cost about $6 billion a year. So again, not nothing. But we can save almost a million people from dying over the next half century. Every year. So this is one of the things where we say, and we, we're, you know, we're, we're slightly crude economists. We go in and say, how much will it cost and how much good will it do? So we give you a benefit cost ratio. We try to estimate for every dollar spent, how much good will you end up doing? Turns out if you do it on tuberculosis, for every dollar spent, you'll do $46 of social good. That's just an incredible opportunity. So do you guys bring these ideas to, say, a guy like Bill Gates, who's got the billions, who, who seemingly wants to help, you know, by his own words, would say he wants to help the people of Africa and help the world. Do you bring these ideas to them? And then, and then what do they say? Yes. So we both talked to Bill Gates. Actually, the Gates Foundation paid for this project. Uh, but we, we talked to Bill Gates. I wrote a, uh, an op-ed together with him. Uh, we talked to USAID and other organizations. But crucially, we also talked to a lot of poor country governments who obviously should also pony up some of this money because it's their own citizens who are dying. Uh, and much of this is they're dying because they're not the, you know, they're not the rich people in the poor part of the world. If you're rich in, in the poor part of the world, you don't get tuberculosis. And even if you do, you don't die from it. But, you know, the slum populations, it's the migrant populations, it's the miners, it's the prison populations. But the problem is this percolate all the way through societies. So we try to take all of these arguments and make people aware that here's a very cheap way to make the world much, much better. And yes, they say, oh, that's really interesting. Now, they're not going to say, oh, sure, so here's $6 billion, make it, make it go away if you want. First of all, that's not what I do. I'm an academic. Right? I wouldn't know what to do with $6 billion. <laughs> and there's a lot of organizations that are actually really good at this. So you should give it to your national uh, 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 healthcare systems and the you know, Stop TB campaign and many others in those countries. But the point is, we're trying to make it easier for politicians and for philanthropists and for development organizations to spend right 
suspend it where it really matters. So, all right, before we get to that second one that, that you like out of these 12, and then we'll get to as many as possible, how do you make sure that the mechanisms are in place, that these things just don't become what seemingly most government things become, which are giant, you know, government waste projects. We don't, you know, we give money to everybody. We never get receipts on anything. I think that that's another thing that a lot of people are worried about these days. Like, even if you can convince them of, of some of the risks and why we can do some good things here, they're just like, ah, you know, we're just gonna pour money and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but we just won't know. And, and, and that's a very correct uh, uh, concern. And a lot of the things that we spend money on Go to things that make you feel good, uh, things that look good on TV, uh, but have very little effect. But we're actually using the best models of things that have already been done where we showcase, look, if you spend the money here, even though some of it is going to go to waste, that you know that's probably true almost everywhere in the world. And some of it is just going to be spent incompetently. That's just the f- way the world works. We've taken that into our calculation. So we're not assuming that this is going to be heroically spent in the very best possible way. It's going to be spent reasonably com- uh, competently, like you, know, you would actually hope you can reasonably do that. And let me, let me share this because it's much clearer with the, with the other uh, proposal that I was going to talk about, namely education. Uh, education is something everyone agrees both sucks and we should do much more about, right? <laughs> But right. it especially sucks in the poor part of the world. Uh, so there's almost half a billion kids in primary school in, in the poor part of the world. We got almost all kids in school. That's great. Uh, but they're learning virtually nothing. We say that they technically learn to read. But if you ask them this question, so you ask them to read this question. Uh, this is a 10-year-old, right? VJ has a red hat, blue shirt, and yellow shoes. What color is the hat? Uh, it's red, right? But 80%... I, I got it, I got it. Thank you, thank you. So you're there. Uh, 80% of kids cannot answer this question. And it's not because they're dumb. It's because they can't actually string all these words together into a meaningful sentence. And mm-hmm. of course, that means we've technically te- taught them to read, but they can't actually use it to become more productive and become richer and more resilient and I'll do all the wonderful things... It's, it is. It's that they haven't actually learned most of the stuff. So what we find is you should spend more money on education. But this is exactly where you would say, oh, but there's a lot of ways you can spend it badly. And that's absolutely true. So one example that I give in the book is Indonesia. And, you know, bless their hearts. They really wanted to do good. They basically said, we care so much about education that we're going to double spending on education. So they ended up hiring more than a million new teachers. They doubled the uh, pay for each of these teachers. And because of the way they did it, so they did it in different regions at different times, there's actually a big study that could sort of look this as a pseudo-random trial where you could see, well, how much good does this actually do for the schools? And it turns out this famous paper is called Double for Nothing. And it basically shows Yes, you spent twice as much money, and there was no impact whatsoever on teaching. It's very, very easy to spend money badly on education, and this is true everywhere else. But what we identify are three great ways that are very, very well tested. I'm just going to tell you one of them. So the problem in most schools, but especially in poor countries, is you have 50 kids in this one, you know, in this fourth grade. They're all 12 years old, uh, but they have wildly different uh, abilities. You know, some of them are far ahead of the teacher. Some of them have virtually no clue what's going on. And what's a teacher going to do? He's 
going to try to teach somewhere in the middle. And, you know, some kids are going to be bored. Lots of kids are going to be totally lost. He should teach each one of these kids at his or her own level. But, of course, you can't do that if you have 50 Mm -hmm. kids. But if you put each of these kids in front of a tablet with educational software, just one hour a day, this tablet with actually the software will very quickly figure out where exactly are you on this? You know, are you really ahead of this curve or not? And teach you at your exact level. So the rest of the school will still be this boring old school where most kids will be lost or bored. But one hour a day, they'll actually learn. And what it turns out, and there's lots of evidence, that for $21 a a year per student, they're not going to get the tablet. It's going to be shared with a lot of other kids and all that stuff. And you also need, you know, solar panels and places where they don't have electricity. You need a locker for the uh, the tablet so they don't, don't get stolen, all this But it actually turns out that for every year they go to school, they will now learn three years of schooling. Now, it's still pretty bad schooling, so it's not like they're not going to be Einsteins just from this. But this is a way that we can actually make almost half a billion kids smarter. And what that means is that they will, when they become adults, go out and be much more productive and actually make their nations much richer. And, of course, that will solve a lot of the other problems they have. So we estimate this will cost globally about $10 billion. So again, not nothing, but it will actually generate benefits worth $600 billion each and every year. This is just amazing and astounding. So instead of spending it badly, we should spend it on this really, really effective way. You know, it's funny, I'm reminded of a a Simpsons episode from probably around 1993 where Bart is struggling in school, so they put him in the slower class, and then he looks at the teacher in the slower class and goes, let me get this straight. I'm struggling in the other class, so now you've made me put me in a slower class. How does this make any sense to you people? So you're trying to solve that. Okay, so it seems like between education and tuberculosis, if, I'm, if my math is correct, we're at about 16 billion, which is about half of uh, what you need to fix some of the problems. So uh, we've got about eight or nine minutes left. Let, let's plow through a couple others to, to let's well, get let to that do, 32. Yes. Uh, tell you one other. So one that I think uh, amazed me is the fact that maternity and especially pregnancy and especially birth is terribly dangerous. Uh, So it turns out about 300,000 moms die each year around pregnancy and about 2.3 million kids die in the first 28 days in their life on earth. Uh, And this is not rocket science, how we deal with this. This is simply about getting the women into uh, facilities. So about two thirds of them give birth in facilities. We need to get like 90% of them into facilities. And these facilities need to have basic emergency obstetric care. This is something the World Health Organization, lots of institutions have shown. What will that take? You know, it's about having, I don't know, disinfectant. Uh, you'd imagine that would be sort of obvious, but actually a lot of them don't have a clean water so that you can wash down the surfaces. But it's also something so simple as it turns out that about 700,000 kids each year die because they never start breathe. So they come out, they get, uh, you know, they're bir- uh, given birth, but then they don't start breathing. Now, this also happened in, in rich countries. So about 80% of all kids that come out of the mom, you know, just start breathing right away. 15% need this slap in the back uh, to get going, but the last 5% don't. And, you know, in the rich world, of course, we just simply put uh, a mask over their mouth and put positive air pressure, put it into the lungs and they go, <gasps> and then they go and then we save them. But we don't have that 
and about half of all the poor parts of the world. This is a, this this hand pump costs what seventy five dollars, and it could probably save twenty five lives over its three year uh, life period. That's the kind of thing. So there's a whole list of things. This will cost about five billion dollars again. Uh, so, but it will save one hundred and sixty six thousand moms from dying each and every year, and it will save one point two million kids each and every year. How are we not doing that? So, you know, that's another amazing thing. Actually, every dollar spent will deliver $87 worth of good. So there's malaria. Yeah, you've uh, got me to, t- I see about 21 million so far. Yes, We're getting there. Yes. So, I, and of course, I'm telling you the sort of uh, more expensive stuff first because sure. they are the really big things. Malaria is actually a huge, it used to be a huge problem around the world. It's no longer. It's just in Africa. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but we know how to fix it. It's simply giving out, uh, more of these uh, 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 insecticide-treated bed nets. So people will sleep under these nets. It both physically makes sure that the mosquitoes can't come in and bite you, and it also kills them off because it has insecticide. It is very effective, very simple treatment. It'll cost about $1.1 billion a year, and it will save about 300,000 people each and every year. Again, a fantastic investment. One other thing that I think you'll find incredibly interesting is agricultural research and development. So, you know, we worry about the fact that people don't have enough food. We also have a part, and I'm not going to tell you about that. We also talk about how we can get better food to kids. But it turns out a lot of that is very uh, uh, corruption prone, right? If you spend a lot of money on, on food, a lot of people, we see that, for instance, in India, a lot of merchants will sell you really bad food and then you try to distribute it for, for free and nobody really wants it because it tastes terrible kind of thing. So the best way to deal with this is to, just like we talked about before with climate, innovation. We had a green revolution back in the 60s and 70s, which basically meant that we could produce maybe twice as much food on the same acre of land which is a great innovation. You just simply make the seed much more productive. We need that for all the stuff they grow in the poor part of the world. So that's sorghum and cassava and all these things that you probably haven't heard of. But we need the same green revolution there. Uh, We estimate this would cost about $5.5 billion a year, but it would generate much more food. But that would both mean the price would be lower for people who live in the cities, but it would mean that the farmers could produce much more. So the farmers would also get richer. Everyone would win. And we'd avoid about 100 million people uh, starving each and every year. Going on that for a moment, how much tension do you see between big cities and rural areas these days? You know, I, I was in Cali before where there was always this incredible tension between, say, Los Angeles, where I was. Obviously, you have, you know, 8 million people, something like that, in a relatively small area. Then you have the whole north of the state, which is all the agricultural land. They were always fighting for more water. The people of LA wanted the water. Just the general, like, day-to-day living of who gets what. Oh, and and look, cities get a lot more money everywhere because that's where, you know, the power is. That's where the politicians live. That's, you know, who runs the media and everything else. Uh, and, And so in that sense, what we try to pick up is a lot of the great investments are in poor areas because that's where you can save people really cheaply. So one thing is, for instance, more childhood immunization. Uh, and that's especially bad. So we got about 80, 90% vaccinated most places around the world. You know, measles, for instance, 
great idea. Don't skimp on your measles vaccination. Right? It's, it's just a terribly deadly disease that used to kill about 800,000. Now we're down to 80,000. But you ne still need to get more people vaccinated. Otherwise, you're going to get these uh, epidemics again. And getting the last ones out in the, in, in the sticks is going to be more expensive. But even then, we find with a much more expensive cost, it's going to cost about, uh, sorry, I'm just looking at the uh, cost because I can't just remember those, <laughs> $1.7 billion a year. Uh, but it, it's going to save about half a million kids each and every year. Uh, so the benefit cost rate is about 101. Uh, so, so again, we try to identify uh, different things that are incredibly good. We simply said, we're going to identify the best buys. Uh, and we put the bar at 15, which is you know, somewhat arbitrary, but is you know, some, something our Nobels did uh, uh, just simply for saying, look, these are the so no-brainers that everybody should just agree this is something we should be doing. How worried are you when, when you talk about vaccines now because of everything that happened with COVID? You know, these bells go off in my head oh, about vaccines and how they get in people's arms and the uh, that the... Uh, pharmaceutical companies, you know, they have no ability to be sued, all of these things, that now people are skeptical of things, say a measles vaccine, that really very few people were skeptical of, say five years ago. Now you just say vaccine, and now it's setting off bells on people that have long been dormant. And and, and that's a terrible outcome. And, and the, the way I try to treat it is to talk about childhood immunization. We're not talking about, you know, we should do another uh, uh, COVID vaccine, which obviously is hugely uh, uh, sort of uh, divisive, divisive, divisive. That's Either way, I'll go with you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But, but, you know, childhood <laughs> vaccines, everyone knows has just saved an enormous amount of kids. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the fact that we could vaccinate against smallpox, uh, which, you know, just last century actually killed somewhere between 300 and 500 million people. Uh, and we eradicated it in 1978. There's no more smallpox in the world. This probably every year saves, what, four or five million people from dying? That's just a fantastic outcome. This is true for measles and many of these other simple diseases. This is not rocket science. This is something we know. So we need to sort of get over our uh, ourselves and, and our worry about. And, and I think, you know, I, I see the correct conversation about to what extent did we do right uh, in the priorities on, on COVID. And that's for a whole different kind of conversation. But we know that this works uh, for childhood immunization. And that's what we're arguing for. Bjorn, if my math is correct, we got to about 26 billion, but unfortunately we're out of time. But I will have you back on soon to continue this discussion because I think it's important to get between the skepticism and the ability to do things functionally that will actually make our lives better. That's what you're all about. We'll link to the book down below and it was good to see you. Thank you, likewise. Thanks for tuning into The Rubin Report. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're looking for early and exclusive content, you can join me on Locals at rubinreport.locals.com.